turn in your Bibles with me to three passages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, Isaiah 55, and Jeremiah 29. And I wanted to speak to you from these particular passages of Scripture this morning. There is a little passage in Exodus. It's one verse. I'm just going to read it to you. And if you would just pay attention to what I'm saying. It says, the children of Israel did eat manna 40 years until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan. And I just want that verse to kind of stand in your heart and in your spirit for just a moment. That you know that when God led the children of Israel out of Egypt, he provided their food. And one of that was the manna, the bread that fell for them every morning without fail, and God gave them that. So I just want you to be mindful of that particular verse, and that was in Exodus, um, what passage? Exodus 35, no, I'm sorry, it was Exodus 16, verse 35, is where I read from, Exodus 16, verse 35. Um, this morning, I just wanted to start with a particular verse of the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and I wanted to read this, and it tells us, if, if you would read this with me in verses 6 and 7, it says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, wherein He has abounded toward us, in all wisdom and prudence. I celebrate the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God for what he is able to do in our lives because of the abundance of his grace. The Bible even says to the praise of his glorious grace. Praise is actually given to the glorious grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I don't recognize any other type of grace than this grace that is biblical and taught by us through Jesus Christ and Paul and is found all through the Old Testament. You will see this grace at work. God magnifies his ability to show grace. Jesus said that the spirit of the Lord had anointed him and the anointing of God's spirit on Jesus's life was to heal those that were brokenhearted. The anointing on Jesus' life was to deliver those that were oppressed, those that were held in some type of captivity. Maybe you feel this morning trapped in a particular place in your life that you'll never get out of. You see no way out. You see no solution. It might be a marriage. It might be a job. It might be a financial situation. It might be an addiction. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is anointed to deliver you from that captivity. Yes, and he can do it. He, he yes. does it. He has the power to do it. He has the authority to do it. And he has the heart to do it. His heart is, is moved with compassion upon those that are struggling. Upon those that are in misery, Jesus <laughs> is moved with compassion toward you. He may in some way, not that he would want to, but he may in some way just kind of pass over those that are here this morning feeling like, well, you know, I've got it all taken care of. There's some problems in my life and I'll be able to sort that out as well. And Jesus may say to you, as he said in the New Testament, those that are well need no doctor. 
but those that are sick need the doctor. And so if you feel you don't need Jesus right now in your life, he's here for you. And it's not that he wouldn't help you, but you're not allowing this grace of God to touch your life. So I pray that you will, because he comes to open the eyes of the blind. He comes to proclaim to those that have been rejected in life, rejected in religion, rejected by their families, that this is the, the year, the moment, the season, the generation that the Father is accepting you. And that is, that is very, very beautiful. I thank the Lord for his grace. The Apostle Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace was not bestowed upon me in vain, but I labor more abundantly than they all. But it's not me. It is the grace of God which is given to me. And so Paul celebrates the power of God's grace to make him what he was and to make him all that he should be. He would never get there without the grace of God. Do you understand that? So grace is God's presence, God's power, God's personal moving upon your life. Grace is the Holy Spirit and his work in your life. Grace is conviction. Grace is repentance. Grace is joy. Grace is knowledge. Grace is understanding. And when we're moved by the Lord in any of these avenues of our life, it is a good work and God is most pleased with it because it is his work. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship. And that's the way God wants it to be. He wants to work in your life and he wants to work in my life. So I say all of that to give you a personal testimony of something that happened in my life three weeks ago. And I just want to share this with you for a few minutes. Three weeks ago, I woke up on a Monday morning very aware of God and his grace. It was one of those mornings where I believe God woke me up. And God was there. And so before I even got up and got out of bed to do anything, God was there overwhelming me with a sense of his presence and a sense of his provision. And the Lord spoke to me that morning and he just called me beloved. And he said, I am here today to give you a bountiful supply of my grace for all that lies before you today. And God would know certainly more than I what I would face that day. But I had an understanding of what was before me on that particular day. The demands that were upon my life, the meetings that I had, the situations that I had to deal with. And I was very thankful and aware of God's grace that he was giving to me that morning. And I was thanking the Lord for his grace, even with an intent that... I was going to really take advantage of this incredible, extraordinary mercy that God was giving to me. And so as I got up and I went about my day getting ready and then leaving, um, I became very distracted and I became careless and I did not utilize the grace of God. And though God was there to give me an abundance of provision for the day that was before me, I squandered it. My thoughts took me somewhere else. My lust took me somewhere else. The demands upon me took something else. My reactions and my 
well, I was going to say responses, but I guess better, my reactions to the things that I was going to deal with in life that day took me somewhere else. And so I quickly became unaware of this abundance of grace that God was extending to me. At the end of the day, that evening, I was crushed by what I did to God and His grace. And I looked back over my day and I considered my absolute selfishness and what I would consider to be a track or a trail of failure and of people hurt because I did not avail myself of God's grace. And so I sat there at my home in, in my office off of my bedroom, brokenhearted, devastated, and full of shame. And I tried to pray, but I couldn't. And I just concluded, God really doesn't want to spend any time with me. So I went to sleep. And I slept through the night, and I woke up without any communion with the Lord, and I went on my Tuesday to a staff meeting that I had that day. I got here early just to get things ready, to try to pray. Went through the staff meeting, and then it was at a point where I just couldn't take it anymore. I missed the Lord so badly that I just had to escape from everybody as quickly as I could and somehow get along with the Lord. And I, could, I couldn't even lift my face up to him. And I started to ask the Lord's forgiveness for what I did to him. And how I squandered the grace that he had given me for that day. And I said to the Lord, I said, well, I guess you'll never do that again. And it was then that he spoke to me. And he said to me, son, do you remember when Moses was with me in the mountain? And I sent him down with the Ten Commandments to find Israel <coughs> dancing around a golden calf. And my anger was stirred towards them. The next day, there was manna on the ground. And the Lord said to me in my office right over here, that Tuesday, my son, there's grace all over the ground. There's just as much grace for you today as there was yesterday when I woke you up. I will never fail you. I will never forsake you. When you forsake me or fail me, I will not be like you. I am not like you. And God, just in his kindness to me, I know you're not supposed to share things like that. None of you deal with stuff like that. But it's just me. I don't have to play the game anymore. I just get to live for life. And I'm thankful that my father loves me. And I'm thankful that he is true to himself and true to his word and true to the kindness of his heart. So I want you to read with me 
this particular verse that we studied a few weeks ago. This is in Isaiah 55. And I want us to just focus upon the simplicity of this, if you will, in verses 8 and 9. Or if we can, verse 7. And it says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It is the desire of God for wicked people to forsake their ways. If a person is considered wicked, if you are here this morning and you consider yourself wicked, I did the other day. God says if you forsake that way, and even your thoughts, because your thoughts are not good, because you're making assumptions about God that are not true. You're trying to think of God like you would think about men. And that is a wrong thought. And so not only do you have to forsake your way, but you have to forsake the unrighteous man also has to forsake his thoughts. And if you return to God, if you return to God, what is going to happen to you with God? You're going to be given mercy and abundant pardon. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't do that other than the fact that they just really don't believe this to be true. That God's not going to really behave that way toward me. There's going to have to be wrath. There's going to have to be judgment. There's going to have to be some kind of act of God against my life. Because that's the way we are. That's the way we behave. If somebody crosses me, if somebody offends me, if somebody hurts me, if somebody wounds me, if somebody does something to me, then I begin to build up a grudge. I begin to isolate myself. I begin to withdraw myself from that situation. I begin to build walls up in my heart and my affections in regards to that situation and pull myself back and would desire judgment, would desire wrath, would desire punishment in regards for us to ever have a relationship again, but not so with God. When, when we offend God or betray God or wound God or fail God, he does not build walls up in his heart to keep us out. And God also knows that there's nothing you can do to restore the relationship. There's not enough tears you can cry that will take your sins away. There's not enough penance. There's not enough good works that you can ever do to restore the relationship. So if you would just turn to me, I will give you mercy and I will abundantly pardon you. I will do that, God says. He's so different than us, right? Amen. Because typically we just don't act that way. And so he says this in, in, in verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And what God is trying to get across to us in this particular passage of Scripture is obviously in connection with the wicked man. Are the unrighteous man. If we can say it this way, it's, it's in regards to the person that knows that they have offended God. There is something in their life that they have done that has maybe wounded the heart of God. Maybe has forsaken a particular thing that God wanted them to do. Maybe got involved in, in a behavior or a lifestyle that is, is reprobate, that is corrupt, that, that is totally against the ways of God. 
And we begin to imagine and we begin to think what God must think about us. And we typically do that based upon what we would think about somebody who did this to us. Or maybe we would think about it in the way that maybe people have treated us when we did that to them. And therefore, this is, has to be the way God feels about me. And God says, no, 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 don't, don't do that to me. Don't make me like you. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. I will not treat you the way you would treat yourself. I will not treat you the way other people will treat you. I am God, and I am higher than you, and I am above you, and I will be kind to you, and I will pardon you, and I'll be merciful to you, and I will help you. And God is not saying that to the best of people. He's actually saying that to the worst of people. And this bears witness in Jeremiah 29, if you would read that. In Jeremiah 29, this beautiful passage of Scripture that is given to a people that are offending God. They have been a part of idolatry. They have offered their children and sacrificed to idols. And if y'all don't realize this, Baal is back. The worship of Baal is back. You're going to see that in a week or two. Um, it is incredible what is going on in the world. These yeah. false gods of the Old Testament are immortal demons and they want and thirst for worship and they're getting it today. This is the end times, guys. And so Israel was caught up in the worship of Baal. They were caught up in other worship of false gods, offering their children to these gods, sinning against the Lord, sinning against the ways of God. And as a result of this, Israel would go through a horrific season of suffering and judgment of God. They would end up in another country as exiles. And here's God speaking to these people that would be in exile. And he says this in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And I just think that is marvelous because if you remember, God said in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts. And here in Jeremiah 29, God is speaking to a rebellious nation that has squandered him and that has not availed themselves of God in his worship or anything. And they're going off into rebellion against God. And God says to these reprobate people that are, are bent upon self-destruction, God says to them, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. We love to quote this scripture in some of the most past popular passages of the Bible. You hear them at graduations and everything. I know the thoughts that I think. And we think, yeah, well, that's God's thoughts about good people and moral people and Christian people. No, it's not. It's God's thoughts about mankind. It's God's thoughts about the sinner. It's God's thoughts about the reprobate. It's God's thoughts about those that did not keep the ways of God. And God is saying to people like that, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. And it's not thoughts of judgment and wrath and destruction and condemnation. But my thoughts about you are thoughts of peace. Thoughts of an expected end. I want to give you a future. And I think that's so incredible. Isn't it wonderful that God wants to give us a future? Jesus wants to give you a future. In the, old, in the New Testament, we love the story, the passage where Jesus goes to Samaria and he meets the woman at the well. And here's this woman who goes to draw water in the heat of the day because she's really not welcome to go with the other people. She's been married five times. She's living with a man. And this is just not kosher in her day. 
So she has to go to the well in the heat of the day to get her water because none of the other women want her around in the cool of the day. And so this is her best opportunity to go without being humiliated and without being shamed by all of the other people. And so she encounters Jesus at the well. And there are so many things about this story, but one of the most beautiful aspects of this story to me is Jesus encounters this woman who has had an absolutely destructive life, married five times, presently living with a man, doesn't know who God is, her people won't accept her, but here's God meeting her at a well, and the one thing that Jesus is able to do with this woman is to give her a future. I'm going to give you a future. Nobody else is giving you a future. Your people are not giving you a future. The husbands that you were married to did not give you a future. The man that you're living with won't marry you. He's not giving you a future. But I'm going to give you a future. I'm going to give you water that you'll never thirst again. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you something worth living for. And Jesus transformed her life. And all to God. That the church of Jesus Christ could be about that. That the church of Jesus Christ could be the demonstration of grace and the demonstration of mercy for those that are turning to God. And maybe they don't come from the best walks of life. And even for those who are believers that maybe fell out with the Lord and they've been gone for a season of their life. And they haven't been to church and they haven't been around. All, all of a sudden they show up and they get somebody to remark to them, well, where have you been? Backslidden? You know, it's like, oh, God, don't let that be what characterizes us. Let us be the people who are able to demonstrate the mercy of God and the abundance of his pardon to people that are turning to look for God. And let us, let us demonstrate that like Jesus did for the woman at the well. Let us be able to give people a future. I was um, in council with a group of pastors in another state. And so they were asking my help in regards to a situation where a particular person, a particular minister in their city fell into public sin. And instead of repenting, this public figure, this minister in this city, uh, began to go to social media and just tear into other preachers and other pastors and into other churches. And it became very, very ugly in that particular city. And they were asking me for my advice. And I said to them, why is he doing this? And they responded, we never thought about that. And I'm not talking about his moral failure. I'm talking about his response to his moral failure. Why is he doing this? And they said, we never thought about that. And I said, I'll tell you why he's doing it. Because he does not believe that there's any pastor or church in this city that will give him a future. He's done. And he knows that if he's done, I'm going to make sure that every one of you are done as well. And if you're going to attack me, I'm going to attack you. Because that's what happens with people that are in sin. They either have to justify it, repent of it. Or make other people as bad as them. And that's what people who are in sin typically do. And this particular minister in this state was afraid. He was terrified that I have ruined my life. 
My future is over. I will never be respected again. And why shouldn't he think that? Because that has been the response of the church for 2,000 years practically for anybody that would sin. I told these pastors while I was with them, I said, you know what? If we went to a buffet tonight on Saturday night, and at that buffet, I absolutely gorged myself. I took indulgence at that buffet to eat more than I should have eaten. Every one of you pastors would have looked at me. Maybe you would have laughed. Maybe some of you would have even smirked at my gluttony. But none of you would have, would have told me, you're not allowed to preach in our church on Sunday because you overate on Saturday. You see, that's a sin that we as Christians can openly admit to. Oh my gosh, I overeat. Or maybe we would admit that we lose our temper. Or maybe we would admit that we get aggravated in traffic. But every one of you knows that you've got much deeper sins than that. And you cannot afford to admit what these sins are. You cannot afford to confess these sins. Because these are the bad sins that Christianity does not condone. And if anybody knew about this, it is over for me. Amen. Because we think like men and not like God. And the ability to have the compassion and, and this thing that we call grace that does not tolerate sin. But it delivers people from it. And it restores them to God. So we can talk about all of our lesser sins. We can talk about the areas of our vanity. We can talk about the areas of our loss of self-control or our selfishness or our overeating. Or yes, I've gossiped. Yes, I've slandered people. Oh, I wish I had enough because everybody has. But the moment a woman or a man stands up and admits, I've got an addiction to pornography. I have a moral failure in my life. They are terrified to do that because they know I'm cut off at that point. I will live the rest of my life scorned by the church of Jesus Christ. They will think less of me. They will view me as me. They will look at me as though upon the flesh and not after the spirit anymore. And what God's able to do with my life. What tragedy, what absolute tragedy. In a world that is about to meet the return of Jesus Christ, there are multitudes of prodigals that need to come home. Yes, amen. amen. And the church of Jesus Christ has got to understand the power and the glory of the grace of God. We've got to get to a place in our Christianity that we think like God. And thank the Lord he gives us the mind of Christ to do it. Amen. We've got to get to a point in Christianity where men and women have some type of avenue where they can talk to somebody in the body of Christ about their real sins. And know that they're not going to be condemned and they're not going to be cast out for the rest of their life. That life is not over and ministry is not even over. If somebody knew what I really was and what I really did. Somebody knew about my secret drinking or drunkenness or the parading of this or my gambling habit or whatever it might be. And if people were to know about this in my life, I would find freedom. I would find the anointing of the Holy Spirit to deliver me. I would not be cast aside because Jesus does not do that. I want to demonstrate that type of an anointing for people. It's the passion of my heart because 
God has allowed me to be all too familiar with myself. And I understand what happens when we do not receive the grace that he gives us to live each day. Yeah. And how off track we can get by the end of the day. Oh, we can still do all of our religious duties and look really good and fool everybody around us. But you're not fooling yourself or God at the end of the day. And so we need his grace. And so I want to come to this conclusion this morning. It's in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians. And I just want to focus for just a minute on this grace of God, the wonder of his grace and the power of it. And the Bible tells us, and I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 again. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein, it's in that, it's in, the, it's in his grace, that he has made us accepted in the beloved. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say he accepts you in grace. Though he does. That's not what it says. By grace, he's actually done something to you. What did he do? He made you accepted. He's not just accepting you because he's merciful and gracious. He's actually transforming your life by grace to make you accepted. I would pray with all of my heart that the Holy Spirit would give you the revelation of that. Because that's what makes Ephesians chapter 2 so understandable when you realize that you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You're his workmanship. That means that God is working in you to make you something, and he's doing it through his grace. And what he is making you is accepted. And the word accepted means to endue with special favor. God is imparting to you. God is imputing to you special favor. That's not to just anybody. He opens in verse 1 to the saints. So this is for believers. This is for people that have been born again. They have turned from their wickedness and they've come to Jesus Christ. And so they're believing in him and trusting in him. And as a result of that, God is making them accepted. God imputes to the saints special favor. You're actually going to be above angels. You're actually going to rule over angels with God. You're not just allowed to escape hell and go to heaven, but you have been made kings and priests unto God. You have a special access with God that no other creature has. You can actually go into his presence anywhere at any time because he's your father. This is incredible. God has made you that. God has made you a son. He's made you a daughter and declared himself to be your father. This also means, accepted, also means to make agreeable, to make graceful, to make lovely, to make acceptable. So God, by his grace, is making you lovely. God, by his grace, is making you graceful. God, by his grace, is making you agreeable. Isn't it funny to see how disagreeable people are with God in our culture today? 
It's like almost everybody disagrees with God, and I disagree with the Word of God, and I disagree with the truth of God, and I disagree about the goodness of God, and I disagree about the Bible, and I disagree about this, and I disagree about that, and I, and, and I don't know anymore about homosexuality. Maybe, maybe, maybe God's old-fashioned, and, and so I kind of disagree with that, and I kind of agree with some of the wokeism, and, I, and this and that, and everybody has these opinions about But when you're a saint of God, and God is at work in your life through His grace, you know what you do? You agree with God. I'm in agreement with you. I'm in agreement with your word. I'm in agreement with the family. I'm in agreement about a husband and a wife. I'm in agreement with about male and female. I'm in agreement. I'm not in agreement with wokeism. I'm in agreement with God and his word. That's what grace is doing in your life. It does that to you. Praise God. Amen. And when it is done to you by philosophers or professors or theologians or pastors, you can be very dangerous. But when it's done to you by the grace of God, you will be very evangelistic. You'll be very tender because your thoughts will not be the thoughts of men, but the thoughts of God. And you will exemplify this mercy and this grace to them. So God makes you acceptable. He's making you that. He's not just giving you access to his presence because he's kind and good and merciful. But actually, when you walk into his presence, God and you are in agreement. And when you walk into his presence because of his grace, God is saying, lovely. Absolutely lovely and gracious. And that's what he sees because he's making you that. It's so beautiful what God does. And how does God do this? How does God make us this? And so I want to I I preference this by saying this, and I'm not going to be much longer because I know you're in uncomfortable chairs. <laughs> I wanted to have a video of some of these people in third world countries sitting in the rain with, with water running at their knees for their whole church service. <laughs> God playing, you know? um, how does God do this? And, and here's the fundamental thing. Listen to me carefully. If you don't know why God loves you and how God can love you, you will never get out of the cycle of condemnation and performance. Because you will constantly be trying to do something for God to love you more. You have to understand, how can God make me accepted? How can he make me agreeable and lovely and gracious? And how can God impute to me special favor? How can he do that and still be righteous and holy and just? And he tells us how he can do it. And it's in the next verse, and I want you to read it. It says this, in whom we have redemption. Through his blood. We have redemption through his blood. That's how God can do it. And what this word redemption means, it means the legal payment for sin. Legal. I want to stress legal. It's the legal payment for sin. That's the new covenant. It is the legal payment for sin. The ransom that has been paid in full. The riddance. The removal of all debt. And all offenses is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That simply means, you know, if you're going to go buy a piece of property or you're going to buy a house, 
It takes about a month to do it because you got to have a team of lawyers that begin to recess, re research and see are there any liens on the house? Are there any liens on the property? Is this title free and clear? And all of these types of things that have to be found out. Well, guess what? What God has done for me through his marvelous grace is he has redeemed me through the blood of Jesus Christ, which means that God has legally paid in full and freed me from all debt and all offenses. That means there is no lien on my life. There is, there is, there is no claim. There, death, hell, and the law cannot lay a claim on me ship. Because I'm redeemed by his blood. It is paid in full. That's how God can reconcile his relationship with me legally and justly because God through the new covenant of Jesus Christ's blood has paid my debt in full and I'm legally released from the judgment against me. And then not only does he do this, but it's absolutely beautiful if you would just look a little bit further and he says the forgiveness of sins. He can make us accepted because he's redeemed us through his blood and he has forgiven us of our sins. And that word forgiveness of our sins teaches us this. It is the erasing. Understand it. It is the erasing of all accusations and giving us a right standing with God as though we had never sinned. And so this is the marvel to the praise of the glory of his grace because God in his infinite wisdom knew and determined that I am going to have a creation in which I am going to bring about redemption, a legal payment for man's offense. And I'm going to forgive his sin so that he can walk into my presence as though he has never sinned. Thank you, Jesus. And what do we do? We beat ourselves up. And it doesn't mean that we're not aware of sin. And it doesn't mean that God's not aware of sin in our life. But he's not going to impute sin to our life. He's not developing a list of our offenses, and when we've filled up the list, then judgment's going to come. We're not under the law anymore. The law has no claim on me. And so I'm in relationship with God as a father and a son. And I never kept a list of my children's wrongs or offenses. But I, as a father, I would help them to try to grow and mature and be respectable people in society. And so God certainly does that with me, but he has forgiven me of my sins. He has robed me in the righteousness of another, and that is Jesus Christ. He has imputed to me the obedience of Jesus. He has imputed to me the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, without which no man will see the Lord. And now when I come into the presence of God, through the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, I am walking into God's presence, and God is saying, lovely, acceptable. I see no sin. There is no unrighteousness in you. You are in right standing with me. It is so hard for us to grasp that. That's why we have to have faith to believe God to do that. And then I'm, I'm going to be just a moment. I want you to see this. It says he's abounded to us in all wisdom and prudence. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. This is the church. According to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. That's Ephesians 3 about the church. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, 
both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And here's what I want you to see. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. We should be to the praise of his glory. So what is the purpose of him who works the counsel of his own will? Who is this? What is this? It's in verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That is his purpose. And that is his desire. And when all of it is done, God is going to be magnified and glorified for his marvelous power and grace to redeem fallen people and reconcile them to himself and restore them. You do not have to beat yourself up to gain entrance to God's presence. And for any of us, even myself, a few weeks ago, when I felt like I couldn't even lift my face to the Lord, what a false humility. I mean, it was the reverence of God, and I understand that. It was the awareness of my shame, and I understand that. But there is an acceptance, a, an ability to go before God through the blood of Jesus Christ and turn to him and find the mercy and the favor of the Lord. It doesn't mean I don't ever feel bad for my sin and hold my head down in some type of shame. Because if we sin, the Bible says our hearts condemn us, right? But God is greater than our hearts, praise God. So I don't have to let my heart just lead me along in condemnation. I can understand that God truly loves me. And it is the eternal purpose of God that he would cause me to be able to stand before him holy and without blame in his presence. And the way that God is going to cause me to stand holy and without blame before him in his presence is because God is going to work through his grace, through his son Jesus, by the blood of Jesus Christ, to redeem me from all of the liens and all of the obligations and offenses of sin against my life. And God is going to erase those sins and give me right standing with him as though I had never sinned and bring me into his presence. And beloved, I just want to say to you in regards to that, for your life, there is grace all over the ground. Just like every day Israel woke up in that wilderness, constantly stiff-necked, hard-hearted, not trusting the Lord, God gave manna every day. Every day. Every day of your life, God gives you Jesus. He gives you access to himself, and he gives you the anointing and the presence and the help of the Holy Spirit every day of your life. Though people come into the struggle of what they are and what they know they should be, God was never without a solution. Simon will be Peter. Saul will be Paul. Aaron will be in the Holy of Holies. David will be pure because they are his workmanship. And by his grace, he is going to accomplish it. And he is going to do it. I understand the self-rejection. 
but have a proper faith and exalt the mighty redemption of God through Jesus Christ as a saint of God. And let the Lord lift you into his presence because freedom does not come from sulking for another five days or beating yourself up for another three. Or maybe if I cry just another half hour of tears, then God will know that I'm serious. You know, God knows your heart. And when you turn to God, when you forsake your wicked ways and your, your thoughts, and you turn to God, you're going to find mercy and abundance of pardon. God has that for you. And that's the healing and that's the help for your life. I want you to stand with me, please. I pray that you will allow God to work in your heart and in your life. It was a, um, it was a hymn written long, long ago. And it goes like this. It says, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. Since I found in him a friend so strong and true. I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. All my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. All my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me. And he led me in the way I ought to go. Every day he comes to me with new assurance. More and more I understand his words of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me. Till someday I see his blessed face above. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. If you just pray, I want you to know that he cares for you. And I also want you to know that there's a multitude of people who need to know that he cares for them by the disposition of faith and love that would come through the church of Jesus Christ. The multitudes who have forsaken the ways of the Lord would know that they could come back. They could be restored. That shame could be removed. Because the Lord Jesus is anointed to heal the brokenhearted and to deliver the captives to rescue those who are being bruised and abused and beat up. And maybe that's some of you, and I believe it is. I believe that there's some of you in this house this morning that are beating yourself up because you're so ashamed. And maybe you think, if I just beat myself up a little bit more, then Jesus will forgive me. God will know that I'm serious. God knows your heart. Now, what I talked about in Ephesians is for saints. It's not for the lost. If you're lost, you don't have this grace making you accepted. It's not at work in your life. You're without it. You're still under the payment of sin. You're still claimed by hell and death and the law. And they're not going to let you go until the payment is made in full. I urge you with all of my heart that you turn to Jesus Christ right now and allow God to redeem you. Why wouldn't you? He's not going to hurt you. He's going to save you. Everything else is going to hurt you. But 
God's going to redeem you and he's going to forgive you of your sins. If you just turn to him. So, so don't think the way you have thought in your life that's kept you away from God. Just right now where you are, just begin to surrender to the Lord. Maybe you'd pray something similar to this, but Father, in the name of Jesus, I turn to you. I've, I've lived a life outside of your ways. I've lived a life of sin. I'm full of shame. I'm full of failure. There are secret things in my life I pray no one knows. I know that you see it, God, and it humiliates me. I feel like I've got to get rid of these things before I ever come to you, but how can I get rid of them? But Lord, your word says if I would just turn to you, that you would pardon me and you would give me mercy. I call upon Jesus right now, and I call upon his redemption of blood, that Lord, you would pay my debt and join me to Jesus Christ and forgive my sins and let me walk in this favor with you and you make me accepted you make me agreeable make me lovely in your sight make me gracious in your sight you do it Father I pray in the name of Jesus and I ask if there's anybody here you're a saint but you haven't been walking right you haven't been living right you're in turmoil in your life. I just want you to know there's grace all over the ground right now for you. The manna has been given today. The bread of life has been broken. Who is Jesus Christ? And you can take it. You can eat. You can't beat yourself up enough. Just turn to him. Trust in him. Let his grace go to work in your life. Understand his grace. Understand the power and the help of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let God do the work. And even the conviction is the work of His grace. That is the work of His grace. Your desire to repent is the work of His grace. Don't resist it. Just repent. Right where you are, just give that to the Lord. Let God begin to restore and if there's anybody in your life that you're treating differently than Jesus would treat you, repent of that. And ask the Lord to give us the anointing of the Holy Spirit to treat others the way he's treated us. To love the way we've been loved and to forgive the way we've been forgiven. And then if that would take place in the churches, our community would be transformed. We exalt you, Jesus, for you are worthy. We thank you, Lord, to the praise of the glory of your grace that you made us accepted in the beloved, accepted in Jesus, that you desire to present us before you holy and without blame, and you can do it, and you will do it. This is your purpose, that you purposed. For your good pleasure, you purposed it. You will do it. And God, we will live for all of eternity to the praise of your glory. Our life, our redemption, will magnify you for all eternity. Get it all, even today. As we worship, take a moment. This is the most important part of the service. Most churches today would dismiss with prayer and send you on your way. But this is the most important. And I just ask you to make an altar where you are and spend a few minutes and let God have his way with you. And you have your way with God right now. That's why we worship. Make an altar. Make an altar, make a sacrifice.
of your praise, of your thanksgiving to God. And let God touch you.